Welcome to the In Vino Fab podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. In Vino Fabulum means in wine story. There are so many tales that need to be told about women and community paired with wine, of course. The In Vino Fab pod is a place to learn and share about our stories, about work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts. Tara Hughes is the manager of administrative services at California State University Channel Islands in Camarillo, California. During her five years there, she's developed and implemented a shared services center that acts as the campus' first tier of support for a growing list of services, including information technology, human resources, student business services, and campus mainline calls. Tara is a customer service evangelist whose goal is to infuse the area of technology with a broader set of skills related to emotional intelligence and interpersonal communication. She shares her love of helping people develop the ability to interact more harmoniously and effectively as a guest lecturer on campus and conference speaker at various IT and information security conferences. Well, we're thrilled to welcome Tara Hughes to the Invino Fab Pod. Welcome, Tara. Hi, how are you? I am good. How are you? Good. So we've introduced you, but what's not said um, in your bio on your LinkedIn that people don't really know about you these days? That's a good question. Well, I think people are starting to figure out that I am quite passionate about talking about imposter syndrome. And that has probably been the most exciting adventure in the last several months of being able to just talk to a lot of different people about something that I think a lot of people struggle with, but no one really wants to talk about. So um, that's been a, a real highlight for me in the way that I've been spending my time recently. Yeah, I love that when you said, yeah, you're interested in coming on the pod, that you're like, let's talk about imposter syndrome, exclamation point. I was like, yeah, who's excited about that? Nobody, because <laughs> no one wants to admit it. It's an issue that a lot of people deal with. And and a lot of women or those who identify as women are more often the ones claiming it, sadly. Um, but Tell me how that got to be one of your kind of passion projects and interests in the last little while. I'm definitely curious about that. Yeah. So back in January, maybe a little bit sooner, one of my mentors uh, is a, a CISO and he was kind of- What's a CISO? A- it's not a CISO. Tell him what it is. Oh, that's right. He's a chief information security officer. Cool. Um, and he was getting on my case about- submitting a, a proposal for a presentation for the Educause Security Professionals Conference in May. And for a variety of reasons, I, I hadn't gotten around to doing it. And I thought I had my out. And he contacted one of the people in charge of the proposal review for the conference. And they made an exception for me, amazingly, um, which was great, except that I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And so we were kind of going back. <laughs> Time out. I'll let people know. Educause is a nonprofit higher ed and IT organization. So they connect sometimes those CIOs, learning people, staff, faculty, technologists all in one. So that's the, the kind of conference in higher education. Yeah, absolutely. And some folks from student affairs sometimes too. This is true. This is true. Um, so I thought we were going back and forth and I I had said, I don't know what I could possibly talk about at a security conference because I just oversee our IT help desk and our call center. I'm not really sure what I'm going to bring to the table to security professionals. And so then he made a comment about how it sounded like I was struggling with feeling like an imposter. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you should talk about that. And so my, I was telling my husband about this and we did some research and he was like, 
yeah, that, that kind of sounds like you. <laughs> so the diagnosis is uh, you feel like this way. Um, yes. and, and your role in shared services, can you explain a little bit what that is for some people who may not know? Yeah. So I oversee, currently I manage our IT help desk. Mm-hmm. And then I also manage our shared services call center. And our call center answers our campus's main telephone number, our IT help desk line, commencement, the main line for human resources, and the main line for our student business services. So people who have questions about um, how to pay for their tuition and things like that. So you're like the one-stop help desk of uh, 411 at the university, essentially. That's the hope and and the hope to continue to expand it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, And I think one of the things that is great about that concept is the idea that it's so challenging, especially if you're a first-generation college student, to come onto a college campus and to figure out who you need to talk to for help about which thing in your application process or financial aid. So to be able to know that you can call a series of numbers, but they all go to the same place and know that they should be the experts to know where to direct you if they can't help you. There is something that really simplifies that on the student side. Mm -hmm. I think the hope eventually for our administration is to really replicate that for employees as well. I think it's a brilliant triage system. Like we do this in hospitals when you go to the emergency room, like you're going to figure out what's the situation, what's wrong, where do you need to go or who do you need to talk to? And I think we need to do more of that because universities are very complicated and confusing. We know this. Yes. Yes. And and terminology that makes sense to us, acronyms Mm -hmm. that make sense to us. We kind of assume that people understand um, that we, they know what we're talking about. And oftentimes they really, they don't, or we have these weird pathways that don't necessarily, um, make sense just off of first glance. So I like it. You're kind of like the Uber explainers and helpers <laughs> in some ways. So that's great. I like that. We need more of those in this world. So that's oh, good. Um, so I, I started researching imposter syndrome and really identified with so much of what was, explained and the research that was done and it really just felt like it was something that would benefit me just as much as anyone else and I but frankly I, I didn't think the proposal would get accepted so when it did I was quite surprised and then when I I went to the conference in May and really made an effort to be very authentic and vulnerable in identifying when I talked about different markers of someone who might struggle with feeling like an imposter. There's perfectionism. There's being the superhero. Those were things that I willingly called out about myself and said, this is how I struggle with that. And this is how that can prevent me from doing my best work. Because I really feel like if I We've all been to conferences, we've all been to sessions, and some can be very well-intentioned, but just have difficulty really resonating with people. And this was too important of a topic, and it didn't feel like I had any right to be that sage on a stage where I talk at people, because I haven't figured it all out. And so it seemed like the best approach was to own up to the ways that I struggle with it, and here's how I have found different strategies to help me and at least start the conversation. And amazingly, the response has been really overwhelming in in the various places I've been fortunate enough to give this presentation. 
I've had, at least at that one, I had grown men crying. Oh, nice. You've opened up definitely Pandora's box in this. Great. Good. Yeah, it was Good. a kind of conversation and discussion um, from a variety of professionals that really identified with it and said, I really struggle with it and didn't quite know how to put a name to it. And it, it just has continued to almost have a life of its own. And I just get to be the, the face of it and, and present it wherever I can. So it's something that I've I guess that I've just feel so fortunate to be associated with, but I'm still learning so much. So even being a part of this podcast and getting the chance to talk to you or being asked to do subsequent presentations at every step of the way, I have this horrible crisis of confidence where I think I haven't actually achieved my success here. Somehow I've tricked people and this is the moment that they're going to discover that I fooled them. And then they'll see that I'm really a fraud. And each time I'm proven wrong, but it doesn't mean that the next time I still don't have that same internal dialogue and that I still have to have that conversation with myself. And that is exactly what imposter syndrome talks about is that it's your really successful achievement oriented people who don't actually own up to their success. They think their success is associated to luck or something Mm -hmm. that they can't control. And so they really put themselves in a position where they only see the things that they have to improve or they they aren't really able to internalize the things that they're able to do well. And I have just found it to be so amazing that that has been very true for me just with this presentation alone and having to really apply all of the strategies that I tell people to implement in their own lives. I'm, I'm having to practice what I preach. All right. We're going to get to that. So your definition then, um, before you open the Pandora's box of imposter, how do you, how are you kind of setting up the framework? Are you having them define? Cause we've, I've heard the term imposter syndrome loads of time and many different like industries, occupations and walks of life. So do you define it for them? Do you have them define it? Like how does that framework get set up? Like what's the foundation for when you have a chat with them? Yeah. So initially, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I've, I've talked about it elsewhere. I developed a quiz that I open up the presentation with, and it is a quiz that is very technical. And the quiz results are actually faked, but I make the audience think that they're real. And the, I randomly select an answer that has the majority of the audience selecting it. It's not necessarily the right answer, but it's meant to really make people feel uncomfortable and question their own sense of knowledge about the subject. Mm-hmm. And then when I tell them, hey, this is fake, but those feelings that you had of uncertainty or that lack of confidence, that's what it feels like when you struggle with being an imposter. Like everyone else knows what's going on and you don't. And then that really segs into us being able to talk about how, you know, just a basic definition, even from, you know, psychologytoday.com, they, I think, give probably one of the more simple explanations or or definitions where it's just a, a pattern of behavior where people doubt their accomplishments and they have a persistent, often internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. I think that's brilliant. The fake and switch is really good. That's a good uh, 
teaching strategy technique? Uh, because it, it, people assume there's going to be right or what happens when they're not. And and you talk about some different attributes and traits that people fall into. So it sounds like there's kind of um, some kind of characteristics or personal attributes people take on in the terms of being in part of this imposter syndrome, I'm guessing. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different ways that you can really break it down. And, you know, there's, there's some people who have done far more research than I have, who know much, much more about it than, than I do. Valerie Young is a very well-known speaker and published author. She's done a TED talk. She's been very helpful in what I've been able to learn about it, but she really identifies, you know, perfectionism, this sense of really not being able to celebrate what we do well because we're only focused on that minuscule thing that didn't go quite right. And it really robs you of the ability of ever seeing what you've done well because you're only focused on that little bit that isn't quite perfect. Or being a superhero where you always have to be in the thick of it. You always have to be the person that is kind of going above and beyond to the point where maybe you're trying to prove yourself to other people, but you're really just trying to prove to yourself that you belong. And I I know at least for me, since I don't come from a traditional IT background, that has been especially true in, in my own experience working in IT and having to prove to myself that I belong in IT, even if I wasn't an IT major. Um, and I, I think that with some of the research, a lot of recent research especially, has identified that it's not just those sorts of traits. And there's a, a few others, but there's also that there's there's people groups that are a lot more susceptible to dealing with feeling like an imposter. Minorities, mm-hmm. which would include women mm-hmm. um, in the workplace, and also our younger workers who are just entering the workforce. And I think... It, even if we're talking about a perspective of increasing diversity and equity in our workspaces, I think it's really important to have this conversation because if we're not recognizing that, you know, for me, I, and I'm sure for many women in IT, there's been countless meetings where I am the only woman in the room with 20 other men. And it is scary to speak up. And especially if I feel like I already have things that discredit my opinion because I don't have a certification in this particular field or I don't have an IT bachelor's degree or what have you. And so I think that if we're really serious about bringing diversity and diverse perspectives into these spaces, then we need to recognize some of the challenges when we bring diversity into the picture and making sure that we're not just checking off this box like, look, we have diversity, but that we're supporting those diverse opinions and that they're feeling safe enough to be able to be their authentic selves. I think that's great. We had a small episode where Patrice and I talked a little bit about of diversity is not a training of an hour. It's a embedded thing throughout um, the role, your institutional systems and structures, the way you practice, and even how you hire. Um, it sounds like you've thought, put a lot of thought into um talking to the issue because um, maybe you felt that way, but I'm sure you're not alone in the room if you have uh, grown men crying and weeping, Uh, if you have other people kind of like wanting to have this conversation. So what are some things that emerge um, as you kind of unpack 
the framework and what it really goes behind the barriers of imposter syndrome really in the workplace when you talk to others that you've spoken to. You've had a couple conversations and I know you've done a webinar we'll share um, at Educause and you're going to present again at Educause coming up in October in Chicago. And uh, so tell, tell me a little bit about things that kind of emerge from those sessions and those conversations. So I have been struck by how many people have taken the time to either come up and talk to me afterwards or who have reached out and emailed or sent a private message on LinkedIn to say how much that conversation meant to them and how it really opened something up in understanding themselves better. I think that one of the emerging things for me when looking at imposter syndrome was relating it to information technology and information security. And I think that for those spaces, you have people who are knowledge workers, so they don't get to have this tangible thing to show their value, right? Right. Knowledge is very opaque. It's really hard to show all of the knowledge that I possess. And if we equate our knowledge and our value, that's going to be really tough to sometimes be able to to show, especially if you're just wanting to move up or just feel appreciated. Mm -hmm. The, The challenge with that then is that imposter syndrome so much impacts our knowledge or the way that we perceive knowledge. So I think that everyone else has way more knowledge than I do. And the reality is that's not true. Everyone has knowledge that kind of overlaps and then there's knowledge I have that you don't and knowledge that you have that I don't. And that's okay, right? We want that blend. Right. But we're so scared to even talk about our fear because you don't want to be found out to be a fraud that you just keep it inside, right? And so then it's just perpetuated that you're having this internal struggle that you don't want to talk to anyone about. And so for me, one of the biggest takeaways is just that someone needed to be willing to just put their name on it and open up the conversation. And everyone else really has the, I think, opportunity and the responsibility to figure out where they want to go with it. Mm -hmm. But I think just opening it up at all has been such a game changer because it's one of those things that might come more naturally for those of us that don't have a strict IT background. Sure. But it definitely is is just as important for those who do. And I think being able to to initiate those kinds of conversations has, has been really important. The other thing that I would add to that is that it doesn't seem to discriminate against any kind of person mm-hmm. or title or gender or race or anything like it impacts everyone from the very top to the very bottom. And there's, you know, a story that I share that continues to just be so instructive to me where Neil Gaiman, he's a a pretty famous author. He talks about how he was invited to this really prestigious event a number of years ago. And he felt the whole time, like at some point he would be identified as someone who didn't belong there and they'd have to remove him. And so he said that there was one night where he ended up striking up a conversation with an older gentleman and they were both talking about all of these really impressive people that were there because they were all accomplished in their careers. And this other gentleman happened to have the same first name, Neil, and he 
makes a comment to, to Gaiman and says, you know, I just look around at this room and I think, why in the heck did I get invited here? All these people are incredibly successful. And all I did was go where I was sent. And Gaiman says that he turns to the older gentleman and says, yeah, but you were the first man to walk on the moon. I think that counts for something. <laughs> and I just think like, you know, I remember in history class, you le- learn about Neil Armstrong, right? And you mm-hmm. just think, well, he of course understands where he fits into history and his importance to us as a nation, right? And yet he still sees himself in a very different light. And I think that we trick ourselves into thinking that if I just accomplish this next thing, or if I make it to this achievement, that that will prove to myself that I belong or that I have set myself up for success. And really it's, it's not so much those achievements or anything tangible. It still is your mental attitude about yourself and and what you've done. Yeah, it's it's kind of like you you need to dig into your exter- internal self and feel okay with uh, just being you. So, what if everything was gone the next day? Would you be okay with where you're at and where life is? I think you're right. Like maybe we've built that up, and it's it's not just about giving the kids the prizes and the, and the right. ribbons for showing up. But I think as adults and professionals, we kind of look to the same sort of achievements, right? Like, what's the next? milestone and where do I need to be at or uh, should I be doing this now and um, yeah I think that's a a good concept that can be applied to every industry but IT has a lot of expertise and like you said um, expectation to troubleshoot and know the things and if they don't then what happens yeah well and that's where there's there's this plethora of different ways to compare yourself against other people right yeah certifications and there's degrees and then there's years of experience. And, you know, one of the things that I I have in the presentation is just a a screenshot from the NIST dictionary of information security terms. Mm -hmm. And it's just a list from the A group. And it's not even a full representation of the A group, but it takes up the whole screen. And there's this idea that when we get that label of expert or Mm -hmm. lead, that we're suddenly supposed to develop godlike powers overnight where we know <laughs> everything there is to know about every single aspect. And that's frankly impossible. And I think we set the expectations for ourselves too high. Um, and, and really, it's so easy to say that we're trying to do it for other people, but it really is benchmarking ourselves. And mm-hmm. some of that is because technology and information security are constantly changing and they're rapidly changing and no two career paths look exactly the same. So it's hard to gauge where I should be at and am I on the right path? And I just think there's all of these different variables that really lend themselves towards probably why aren't all of us struggling a little bit with feeling like an imposter, right? I think it's, it's prime for that. I think the secret is that we are, but other people are admitting it and some of us aren't. So uh, we know you're out there and listening. So if you're struggling, it's okay. I am. Um, I think, I think you bring up a good point because it's like that inner self doubt or uh, should I be doing this? Cause if I've got X or I don't know. I actually think um, people forget that when you earn something, whether it's like an award or an accomplishment or a degree, that just is like another license or reason why you keep learning. I, I don't know. Like that's not, you stop there and that's it. You, you're like, oh, that's the thing. And now let's go on. So I don't know. 
But it, I, I would say, isn't it true that sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking that there's some magical thing that happens, like after I got my master's degree, that suddenly I would feel different somehow, but I, I still feel like the same person that I was before. I've learned more and I've learned more about myself, but I don't necessarily feel smarter. I don't, you know, I, and I think yeah. we, as an adult, as a kid becoming an adult, we somehow have this expectation that when you achieve something, it will make you feel a certain way. And so often I think it disappoints that it it doesn't necessarily do that for you. If anything, if you're competitive like me, it just makes me want to earn another thing. Yeah. I think about, so I don't actually care too much about end markings. I like the process. Uh, So I do a lot of internal kind of reflection documenting on the process for that reason is uh, I think that's actually more fun. So people are like, weren't you excited to finish that X degree? And I was like, you know, I had more fun during it. And this is the things I thought of, but I think you're right. Like um, it's the, what's, what's the next? I went, why can't we just be? And here comes my Zen yoga meditation moment. Like, why can't we just be where we are? Um, You shared a good reason of why maybe you're thinking about this because I I do think your career path into your role in IT is unique and I don't know if people could um, go that way anymore it seems a bit more challenging competitive I don't know if you want to share our listeners a little bit how you got to where you are in IT shared services at the university yeah so I earned my bachelor's degree when I was 29 I had taken a lot of time off having a family and then when my girls went into elementary school. I went back to school at night and online and finished up. And there just happened to be a call center that needed someone to manage it. And my husband has worked at the university for a number of years and just kind of threw my name out because he knew that I was looking for a job. And so they hired me as an emergency hire and I managed about seven student assistants answering our call center. And then about six months in, I was gifted the commencement hotline. And about six months after that, I was gifted the IT help desk. And then about, uh, I want to say two years later, I was approached to expand into HR. And then we recently took over student business services. And it's, it's been a really fascinating journey to be able to introduce a different vantage point when you are coming in and helping people. Because like with IT, I can understand a process even if I don't have a technical background. Because some of it really is just taking the, the time and the due diligence to find out all of the information, do the research and understand end to end, right? And, but then being able to take that and translate it into language that a normal person would use who doesn't think about technology all the time and put it into a framework that is not condescending. And I don't know about for you, but I can sometimes come across condescending and not mean to just because I say an acronym so frequently, right? Or a terminology. And so being really thoughtful and intentional about the way that we explain things and really bringing more of a customer service focus to it. The same idea with human resources. I don't have to be the expert, but I have to be able to understand the way that human resources does a process and then translate it to why does this matter to the end user? 
um, because there are things that matter to us on the back end. And then there's something that matters to the end user. And we have to find a way to marry the two and, and create a bridge. And so I find that that is where I get really excited is bridging the two together because both have needs and they're very specific needs and they need sometimes help in figuring out how to make the two meet. It's like being a translator, almost like yeah. you're, it's a communications, a skill, listening and empathy and yeah. all that. So it is like the translation process almost. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. Very cool. I think um, you're not unlike some of the badass ladies I know in my life that have gone back to school later um, and have really found their passion when they go back to learn. And you went on to pursue your master's for yeah. fun. I fun, I'm guessing, and all that. So. Yeah. Fun and strategically. Okay, uh, good. Okay. <laughs> I got my master's degree in public administration with a concentration in leadership from Cal State San Bernardino. And that was an incredible experience. The process was incredibly instructive just for my own character development. Also just meeting people that I think there are a few who are lifelong friends um, but also being able to have a degree, knowing that I have other aspirations at some point in my career to want to continue to move up and be in leadership roles where I can hopefully affect change and understanding that there are certain certain things that help you get there. And the master's degree was was one of them that I thought would be important. Yeah, but pro tip to any young listeners, the degree is not always just about the courses and strategy. It is what you said, networking. It's also figuring you out. And I think in master's programs, more than not, um, even applied or theoretical ones, you dig into you a bit more, even though you don't realize it, whether you're doing case studies with folks to projects and team stuff. And you're like, oh, gosh, this is how I work or this is how I work with others. And yeah, yeah. I think that's there interesting. There was a lot, too, that I felt like I could take and implement at work. And that was so helpful to be able to just give me another lens to see things and try things out because it was homework, right? Mm -hmm. But it also was teaching me so much about understanding how things work and um, doing it in a safe space. But it, it definitely was not just about some certificate. Yeah. Hear that, teachers? Pro tip. Applied projects really relevant to the real world. No, I think you're right. I think we need more of that in the classroom at all yeah. levels um, because I, th I think it makes it gives it more meaning and you're going to remember something from your degree because you're putting into practice in the workplace. I think that's great. Um, is there something that like coming from a non-IT background and living the world of IT shared services, what is your helpful kind of go-to resources or the networks you kind of lean on or, or associations you connect with to kind of um, tool up, upskill, learn from yourself? What do you recommend? Well, when it comes to higher education and information technology, Educause has been probably the, the greatest support network I could have asked for. And there are a lot of people who either are still in the CSU, but maybe not at our campus, who were real champions of that. And some of the best advice I got from the first conference I went to with Educause was to go to different tracks, even outside of IT support services, since that's where I was housed, and really get an understanding of seeing things with IT in terms of 
the different jobs and the different kinds of things that IT is doing in other areas outside of my own, which was so helpful to, you know, I was new to higher education. And so that was really helpful just to see things from a lot of different perspectives. I think the thing that I would argue no matter what is it never hurts to understand things from another perspective. So even if it's outside of IT and higher education, whatever job it is that you're working in, uh, it never hurts to be able to see things from a different vantage point. And for customer service, that's definitely helped for me and the, the work that we do. But I, I really continue to walk away from different experiences with a new appreciation. A really good example would be I gave this presentation recently, two different times. One was remote and one was a webinar. And for each of them, there were different technical complications. And again, I manage a help desk and we have faculty who call and you know sometimes they can't get their PowerPoint to work. And I cannot tell you how much more I empathize with our users after these experiences because my name and my picture are associated with this presentation and I have a whole slide deck prepared. <laughs> I'm a little nervous and right, there's so much that you feel is writing on this and to have your technology not work is scary and disappointing. And in the moment, you have to think quickly on your feet and not all of us are blessed with that ability. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was so good, though, even though those were not maybe my favorite experiences. And they, they ended up being fine, and I worked past it, and it was good. But it taught me something completely separate from talking about imposter syndrome was just being able to relate to the people that were supporting and having a different lens with which they're calling us. And I think that's so critical to be mm -hmm. able to understand where they're coming from. Yeah, our our colleagues and our uh, whether they're end users, colleagues, faculty, student staff have to recognize that you have fallibilities as well, and that's okay. I, I always say tech fails. Like the irony of how many tech related sessions I've done where the tech doesn't work is hilarious. So um, <laughs> that's bound to happen. Uh, uh, I guess I do the improv move when it goes on, but I think you're right. Like it sounds something I will say, as you mentioned, Educause. I will say they have interesting um, areas to connect and listservs of value. I know that listservs can be much to some people, but they've got different areas of emphasis. Um, some of their tracks are looking at institutional change, decision-making these days, um, risk and technology. And then they have those affinity groups, like you said, women in IT, um, LGBTQIA, and diversity, accessibility. And I think they are thinking more broadly than back in the day when it was only <laughs> the CIO lounge, as I, I joked. Uh, so I think they've thought about what that IT worker looks like and how it has evolved in our colleges and universities. Um, so I, I do give them credit to that. And um, a lot of other institutions from around the world send their folks. And I've met people from Denmark to Uruguay because they're like, oh, we need to check out what we're thinking about in the world of um, IT and higher ed. So I think that's great. Uh, they, and they also offer, at least I've only been part of Educause for the last five years since that's how long I've been in higher education. But, you know, they have their management institute program. They have uh, the Leading Change Institute, which is partnered with the college 
Learning Institutional Research, I think, CLIR. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've done both of those programs. And again, the networking is critical, being able to learn from other people at other universities, um, being exposed to things outside of my bubble of my university, um, and for them to be able to provide those, those opportunities and, and really helping grow people into whatever that next position is, I think is also really, really helpful. And again, it, it's had a tremendous impact on me and the way that I see myself and really wanting more and, and being a little bit more ambitious than maybe I would have given myself permission to had I not been exposed to those. No, I think that's great. I've, I've found them to be a valuable resource in the last decade of um, just research um, areas to push the boundaries on it. And then they have a nice teaching and learning track. And they do, an, it's called ELI, usually in the spring, we'll call it spring, um, February. They do a teaching and learning kind of focused one. Um, so yeah, you're right. People from different walks of careers and occupations come together. And I think that's where some of that innovation and thought exchange goes on. People are like, oh, I never really thought about it that way, or we should collaborate on this more. I hope and look forward to hearing how it goes, um, your presentation goes there, because I think you're going to get a very um, diverse audience, I'd say, more than just your IT and uh, security <laughs> professional. So I cannot wait to hear how that goes. Good luck. Thank Sounds you. Sounds like fun. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and chat a little bit about uh, topics of the podcast. We could talk about recommendations of stories, uh, wine or other beverages. What would you like to chat about? We could talk about wine, but I have to tell you that I feel like such an embarrassment to Napa and Sonoma County because I'm not as much of a wine aficionado as I feel like I should be. It's okay. It's a pricey hobby. So I don't blame you. Uh, I would like to be budget. This, if this was a sponsored podcast, I'd send you some wine so you can join. So, um, so what, so do you have a go-to a wine when you sit with family or friends or colleagues or? I do. And it's to the shame of anyone who loves wine. Truly. I love Moscato Diasti wine. Okay. Wine. Okay. Lovely dessert wine. And there was one that my husband and I discovered when we were in Chicago in May. We went to Italy. Oh, yes. I know the place. Italy is great. And Italy then, with an E, not an I. So, that's yeah. right. And they have locations in New York and Chicago and L.A. And we've been to all three of them. <laughs> you like it to eat. I understand. I'm fine. <laughs> that's great. Good. So, good. I love it. We're such fans. And so I'm going to butcher this name, but it's the Fontana Freda Brico Tondo Moscato Diasti. And what I like about that one is that it's not over $20. It's not too syrupy sweet. It's sweet, but light and bubbly. And so I can still drink it with dinner. I know Mm -hmm. that probably sounds gross to some wine aficionados, and I totally get it. One of my bucket list items is to learn to drink wine like an adult. So I'll, I'll work on that. <laughs> that's, that's a good adulting goal to have. Um, I will say everyone comes on the podcast and tells me that they don't know anything about wine and they don't know any. I was like, yeah, you've just mentioned a new thing. It's all about sharing the wine. It's not about being an expert. If I want an expert, I'll bring another sommelier on or an educator. It's fine. <laughs> I would like to ask a question though. Okay. I was in the store the other day and I am shocked at how much wine in cans exist. Like what is that about? That's a good, you know what? I'll put that on one of our topic podcasts because that's a growing thing. We've talked about this um, in terms of cork and the reason why they started replacing synthetic cork 
but we haven't talked about the different areas. A couple reason I can suspect, um, I come from a wine region originally in Niagara Falls and we have boxes, like they look like large juice boxes. Some of it's for portability. Uh, so if you have hikers, campers, it's also to be green and not have glass in places. So, um, We'll get to the bottom of this. Thank you for that challenge. I will add that to one of our Thank mini you. episodes and I'll do a little research on the canned phenomenon because I have seen this a lot more. And I'm curious if it affects the flavor. I think, so I should reach out to a couple, my old roommate from undergrad is a food scientist. And so I should reach back out to her because they, they study packaging as well in food science. And so they look at like, does it impact flavor content, storage, acidity? So all right. Thank you for the homework, Tara. <laughs> I'm going to write this down. Can and flavor. Got it. Inquiring right. minds want to know. <laughs> All right. Good. I appreciate when guests come on and ask us questions because I was like, what's a topic people want to know? So, okay, we'll get to the bottom of that and that'll be a future topic right. episode. So it'll probably come after this one. Um, great. Uh, is there a story that you've heard lately? And that could be like written, spoken word, podcast, film, TV, that you're kind of like, oh, I've been watching this, listening to this lately. Probably not. Well, no, it's books I've read. So not like a, a particular story, but the two that have really had such an impact. And I don't know if it's because I did it through audiobook. Normally mm. I'm a, a reader, but I found that I've been so busy that I've been gravitating towards audiobooks. And so the two that I recently listened to was Becoming by Michelle Obama and Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. And it was really nice to be able to get through a book while also cooking or doing things uh, that I could still be productive. I loved that Michelle Obama read her own book. There's something about her voice that is just so wonderful. Uh, she sounds like your friend. So it was great to listen to her stories. And again, to gain a totally different perspective. And she talks about dealing with feeling like an imposter um, when she got accepted to Princeton and when she became the first lady of the White House. And some of that was because she didn't have examples of being able to do those things to see that they were possible. She didn't have those role models who looked like her and sounded like her who achieved those things. And so to be the first really caused her to question whether she was good enough to, to be in those spaces. Um, and the other one with Brene Brown came from the recommendation of a, a friend and mentor. And I love how she talks about strong back, soft front, wild heart. And that idea of when you're being courageous and having to go into these spaces where it's requiring something of you because it's a little scary, that you you are tough, but you still have that willingness to be vulnerable, that there's a, a blend of both. Um, and, and that wild heart, I often think of kind of the, the enthusiasm that comes with when you're younger and maybe don't always know better and you kind of go forward anyways. And I, I think the, the more that I move throughout my career, the more I want to, to retain that sense of enthusiasm and courage and not necessarily laying down on things that I shouldn't lay down on to still have a sense of principle and integrity, but to still be vulnerable and still have a soft heart for people and still be brave. I, I think that combination is so easy to lose because we can get so jaded. 
And so I've been really challenged and inspired by both of those books. And those are stories that I would gladly point people to read or listen to. It's funny. I read Michelle's, but I listened to Brene's, that same book. I, I think those are great recommendations for folks. So um, listening to is also always good if you're on the go. All right. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners about, you know, what's bringing you joy these days? What's putting a smile on your face and making you happy these days? So I would say probably the thing that has just brought about such joy in my life is continuing to see my three daughters grow. Um, They are 15, 14, and 12 and a half. So we've got two high schoolers and an eighth grader. And being able to spend time with them, some some of that I think is inspired by the idea that I know that my time with them is limited. They're going to be adults before I know it. And so really wanting to be so intentional with them. So like this last weekend, you know, baking with my oldest daughter and and showing her a recipe that I really love or being able to tease them or watching the office with them and introducing some (laughs) ridiculous comedy, being able to really grow our relationship in different ways because it's transformed. It's not what it was when they were five, six, and seven, right? And so that has been scary to see that life is changing as they get older, but it's also been such a joy to see the women that they're becoming and that I get to be involved in that and I get to be front and center as I witness them discovering who they are. So it's been a real joy. I think that's fun. Those are really great ages. There's so much going on during that time. So I think it's fantastic that you're spending time. What did you bake with your daughter? We made Lemon Loaf by Barefoot oh. Massa, and it is my favorite because it has lots of butter in it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to have to look up that recipe. So look excellent. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day, Tara, and talking with us about things you're pondering in the imposter world life. Um, what IT is in the university and shared services and like the things that are kind of um, being uplifting in your life. I think this is more than amazing. Uh, please come back anytime to the podcast. If you have something else to share or you, you want to come in now that you've given me homework, I'm going to definitely call you out on a future podcast. Thanks. Uh, no, I appreciate it so much. So uh, just on behalf of the podcast, we'd like to say thanks for everything you've offered and we'll leave some notes and resources for listeners and any way they can get in touch with you. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to hashtag InVinoFab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers.